Dr. Chertow, I'm going to just do a quick introduction. So I should say C Captain Chertow. So Dan is a um, captain grade six with the USPHS. Um, after finishing, tell me if I'm wrong, I tried to memorize everything, Dan, but after medical school at UCSD, worked for CDC under the EID for, for a little while before coming over to NIH to do critical care fellowship, quickly followed by infectious disease fellowship at, at Hopkins. And in, in every regard has been um, stationed at NIH at the clinical center ever since, doing lots of research on virus and emerging pathogens. And currently is head of the emerging pathogen section. And he has kindly agreed to speak with us today about uh, viral illnesses in the ICU. Um, it would be remiss not to tell you to look at all of uh, Dr. Churchill's recent publications on COVID and his work that he did uh, during the, the more recent Ebola um, outbreak. So with that, I'm going to turn it over and once again say thank you for uh, giving us this lecture today. Okay, great. Thank you for the introduction, Chris. I'm going to share and then if you could just um, yep. confirm that you can hear me and see my slides. Yep, slides look good and audio is good. Okay, perfect. So, um, so again, thank you for the opportunity to speak with the with the group today, Chris. I'm excited that this is such a great initiative um, to bring the fellows together. I know you guys have been doing this for a number of years, and I'm happy to be part of this lecture series. So. Chris gave me some leeway talking about viral illness in the ICU, and so I put my own little bent on it and defined this as uh, current and emerging threats. Uh, hopefully, the group um, is not too fatigued on viral illnesses in the ICU over the last uh, couple of few years, and that I can add a little bit of uh, spice to the topic. So I have no disclosures. Uh, we have three primary learning objectives for today. The first is really just to introduce the, the spectrum of viruses that cause critical illness to give the group a sense of what that breadth of infections might look like. The second objective is to highlight clinical syndromes of all infection and associated ep epidemiologic risk factors. And the goal there is to sort of present the framework that I use for recognizing a syndrome that may be due to a severe viral infection and how to kind of pull that out from, from the background of all the, of all the possibilities of what might, be go, might, what might be going on with the patient. And then the third goal for today is to in, introduce uh, just a few things that and had Chris had mentioned, uh, particular emerging viral pathogens of interest which we have seen recently and almost certainly are going to continue to see, and these include influenza A, Ebola virus, and the severe human coronaviruses. So before we get started, we need to kind of go back a little bit, um, and I'm sure this may look a little bit familiar from folks' uh, micro and immunology courses during medical school or perhaps before that. But we need to think through um, how viruses are, are classified. And as of 2020, there were 189 viral families and over 9,000 viral species that have been recognized. So there's a big pool of these uh, pathogens, and we continue to recognize more and more of them. And so the approach to classifying these 
uh, is based upon a number of features that are largely listed on the left-hand column of this slide, and they include the genomic nucleic acid structure, is this a DNA or an RNA virus, the strandedness of that nucleic acid, double versus single strand, the, or, the sense orientation uh, of uh, transcription and replication of the viral genome. So is this a three prime to five prime or a five prime to three prime replication, positive or negative sense? The morphology of the viral capsid, whether the virus has an envelope or not. And then the genome segmentation. So you know, I think people are, are somewhat aware that a virus like influenza virus has a segmented genome, eight different genomes. That's really eight different segments to the genome. That's really important for the biodiversity of influenza viruses and for the risk of emergence of pandemic viruses from the pool of flu viruses that are sitting out there. While other viruses have um, a non-segmented genome, uh, which, uh, for example, um, the, the current coronaviruses. Um, the genome structure, a little bit about additional details, what the virus looks like by electron microscopy. The, as you know, the coronaviruses are named for their circular shape with the spike proteins looking like a crown, whereas filoviruses really are filamentous in appearance by electron micrograph. The size of the virus matters. Um, you know, these some of the pox viruses and herpes viruses are really these large, complex viruses, as are adenoviruses, whereas other viruses, some of the enteroviruses, the coronaviruses, are these you know, very small, uh, small genomes. And then ultimately, how the um, the genome is expressed. So, uh, for example, in flu, it has eight segmented genomes. Uh, individual individual genes are transcribed at a single at, uh, at different time points, whereas uh, certain flaviviruses, for example, will have a, a single polyprotein that is transcribed all at once, and then uh, post-translational uh, modifications and cleavage of those proteins into the structural non-structural proteins occur. So all that's relevant identifying viruses and, and also understanding their biology and, and how they interact with the human host. I mentioned a little bit about um, viral discovery and the number of um, viral species that, are, that have been recognized to date. Of the total population of viral species, about a little over 200, 219, 220 viral species have been recognized to cause infection in humans. And if you go way back to when, you know, the early days of, of microbiology uh, and recognition of bacteria in the 1900s, the early 1900s, our tools for recognizing the presence of virus or, or for viral discovery were really kind of basic. And the first tool was filtration. And the concept there was, you know, we were, the germ theory was beginning to be recognized that the concept of virus wasn't uh, present yet. It was a filterable agent. So if you had an infectious secretion or otherwise, and you put it through a filter and the stuff that came out the other end, early experimentation, the, the stuff that came out the other end, they would identify whether it can induce uh, disease in different animal models and say, well, this is a filterable agent. And that was the first time that viruses began to be recognized. And as a matter of fact, that's how the first flu viruses were recognized in the early 1930s. And then technology improved a little bit, 
uh, with complement fixation, which the way that I think of that is it's a historic um, form of the uh, modern day ELISA, but it, it is a tool that recognizes presence of uh, antibodies or uh, pathogen um, antigens um, in sera and can say, you know, whether or not the, a pathogen was was likely to be present by this by this tool, which again was one of the main tools that was used all the way into the you know mid 1950s or so, 19 late 1940s, when tissue culture finally came around and we began to use tissue culture as a way to recognize the presence of virus in different body fluids. And the idea here is familiar to folks where you inoculate a, a monolayer of cells in a petri dish and that if there's a virus present then you would begin you would observe classical cytopathic effects so basically holes in the monolayer that were reflective of virus and then ultimately that tool tissue culture combined with uh, polyclonal and then ultimately monoclonal antibodies allowed um, allowed scientists to begin to say oh this is this particular virus that is growing in tissue culture. And that was the primary tool that were used in microbiology labs to recognize uh, or diagnose viral infections for many, many years in advance of PCR, which came in the mid 80s and really kind of took over and revolutionized, revolutionized both um, viral discovery, but also viral diagnosis. And of course, now we all rely heavily on singleplex and multiplex assays for viral um, diagnosis. And of course, we've now moved into the era of sequencing, um, where we're using that tool for viral discovery and also for increasingly for uh, this uh, diagnosis. So these 200 and some human um, path viral pathogens fall into a, a total of 26 viral families. 23 of these viral families are listed here that are that are known to cause human disease. And, and here we are as, as ICU doctors, and our goal is to figure out, well, which of these viruses are, are relevant for uh, our patients and, and when, we should be, when we should be thinking about them. And I just want to spend a little bit of time on this slide um, because, number one, I had to go back and study it in order to be able to discuss it with you all. So I'm, I want to make use of my effort. Uh, but number two, because it's, it really is interesting. And for those of you that kind of nerd out about microbiology and virology and to go back and to say, okay, I remember these classifications and say, yeah, yeah, that family, these viruses, and they, they have this sort of clinical relevance is, is an interesting and, and useful exercise. And again, this, this article was written by peers in the uh, Vaccine Research Center uh, and published in Nature Immunology in 2018. The point of the article was to sort of outline well, of all these different human pathogens, you know, what is our process for recognizing them, for evaluating them in a way that will then allow us to move forward and uh, develop uh, vaccines as countermeasures for them? And so you can see the ones here where we've successfully, you know, have at least some form of a countermeasure in the way of a vaccine for these different viruses. But you know, sort of just quickly go through the the list, and obviously the the viruses are, are not um, complete of the, they're just sort of prototypic viruses. But if you look at this, you know, so paramyxoviruses, measles, mumps, and, and Nipah. So measles, it continues to be a problem. Um, you know, we constantly wonder if as adult critical care providers, if somebody showed up with measles pneumonia, how well we would recognize it because we don't see it typically, but clearly there are outbreaks that, that do play, take place in the United States. 
Nipah virus. Um, you know, this is a, a, a virus of largely of Southeast Asia. So as we go through this, some themes are going to come out about epidemiologic risk factors. So any reason um, that somebody, you know, uh, wasn't vaccinated or is in a particular community that believes against vaccine for measles, uh, any travel to Southeast Asia for Nipah virus and exposure to uh, bat droppings. Rubella, that's German measles. Uh, that's in the MMR vaccine, and largely we should have coverage against this. Uh, Rio Verde rotavirus, not so much a problem in adults, but obviously can cause severe secretory diarrhea that can cause hypovolemic shock in kids. Or the mix of Verde, the, these are the influenza viruses that we're all very familiar with. Adenoviridae, an extremely diverse group, largely respiratory infections, many of which are mild, some of which can cause severe disease. And obviously, again, thinking about risk factors in our immunosuppressed population, and certainly we've seen our fair share here at NIH post-hematopoietic stem cell transplant, where you have reactivation of adenovirus, adenoviremia, and multiple uh, end organs that fail uh, as a result without effective therapy for that. For that, uh, for those viruses, rhabdovirus. This is rabies, Bacornaviridae. These are the uh, polio and non-polio enteroviruses, and of course, we're familiar with Hep A that can cause that is, you know, fecal-oral uh, transmission that can cause on, uh, on some occasions, uh, fulminant hepatitis. The Papillomaviridae we don't typically see in the ICU, other than with regard to their association for certain malignancies. Pox viridae, this was smallpox. So smallpox, cowpox, which is vaccinia, and of course, monkeypox, which sort of looks like smallpox, uh, but is a zoonotic infection uh, largely from uh, Central Africa. And then uh, hepatinoviridae, hepatitis B, most of us uh, should be vaccinated against this. Varicella, um, we understand there are syndromes with that and predominantly uh, encephalitis, and we'll talk about that. The diversity of flavoviridae, these uh, fall into the category of arboviruses or vector-borne viruses that we need to think about um, in certain clinical syndromes, and specifically the most obvious is encephalitis, and this relates to uh, a risk factor for, for travel. And importantly, and as I'll point out, some of these flavoviridae, again, not gonna be in your multiplex biofire or you know, flavor of the day, a multiplex panel for um, meningitides and encephalitides. Now, unfortunately, a relatively common theme for most of these pathogens is that we don't have targeted therapies um, but, uh, but again, for the purpose of diagnosis, um, we need to think about these things uh, if we want to understand uh, ultimately what's going on with our, our patients. So hepaviridae, this is hepatitis E. Um, again, fecal-oral, RSV, uh, and, uh, and metanumavirus. These are uh, both respiratory pathogens. Um, there are certain at-risk populations that you're familiar with, RSV, for example, the post-lung transplant patient population, the post-stem um, cell transplant population, and then metanumavirus can also certainly cause um, uh, severe pneumonia. The filoviridae, uh, a category that's close to my heart, which includes the various species of Ebola virus, and uh, the couple of species of Marburg viruses, 
retroviridae, which include HIV-1 and HTLV-1 and 2, the coronaviridae, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, parvoviridae, B19, uh, commonly associated with myocarditis, um, and we'll mention that. Uh, and then sort of moving down the list, you can see polyoma, JC, um, multifocal leukoencephalopathy, and BK, the immunosuppressed host. So the point is that there are a lot of human pathogens. They fall into different categories. And when we're sitting at the bedside, how do we begin to, to think about, what, you know, what if, if we may have a severe vol syndrome? And, and I would I make the argument that in order to kind of narrow that or narrow our thinking or set us on the right track, it is a useful paradigm to think about this paradigm that most of us are familiar with, and it certainly was emphasized during my time at the CDC, which is in order to get to the center of this triangle of severe disease, you have to have this interaction between the host, the pathogen, and the, the environment. It's a useful strategy to think about. Um, you know, is my is what is my pretest probability that I that I have a severe viral infection on my hands? And so, on the host side, there's obvious things. Um, is there evidence of prior immunity uh, that would that would pr preclude uh, you know infection or severe infection? Are there predisposing risk factors for severe illness, which we're all quite familiar with, but do range somewhat from one pathogen to the next? Um, and what are there predisposing behaviors that puts the, the, the host at risk? On the pathogen side, it's actually relatively straightforward. Most of the severe of all infections among humans are, um, are zoonotic. Uh, they are, are not pathogens that predominantly or only circulate among humans. Uh, they're pathogens that at least at one point in time spilled over from a natural reservoir into the human population. Uh, and so uh, the ones that cause us problem obviously need to be human adaptable. They need to be transmissible. And, the, and as, at least as we're interested in the ICU, they need to be able to cause severe disease. Um, the environment is sort of the, the goes along with this, this concept of the epidemiologic risk factor. Um, we should be thinking about these things. The patient that's sitting in front of me, have they had certain exposures that would put them at risk for certain syndromes? Uh, a geographic travel, travel to a specific geographic region, exposure to animals, either through uh, recreation or or their uh, or their um, employment or, or otherwise. And all of that, you know, is a way of sort of introducing uh, this concept. This is one of my favorite slides from the CDC, so you can see how crummy and old it is. But this is what they have. Uh, but I, I still have this slide from my, my time at the EIS um, where, you know, in one slide, they make this very simple for us. Um, on the left, you know, you have your reservoir of infection. And as I mentioned, you know, the, it's uncommon that that primary reservoir is, is a human. I mean, ultimately, when epidemics and pandemics, uh, you know, take a successful foothold, it is sustained human-to-human -human transmission that allows this uh, epidemic or pandemic to propagate, but it started somewhere else. And the somewhere else typically is from an animal reservoir, a vector, um, or perhaps an environmental reservoir through one or another mode of transmission, whether it be direct contact, think Ebola virus disease, uh, a vector, whether it's a mosquito or a tick, think the, um, the uh, flaviviruses, 
a vehicle. This is the foodborne uh, ideas. And then droplet versus airborne, which I'm going to say a couple first couple words about. And then ultimately, you have to have a susceptible host uh, where there are portals of entry. And here you can see arrows pointing to the, the mucous membranes, uh, skin, uh, and potential sexual exposure, et cetera. I mentioned I'd say a little bit about droplet versus transmission. I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but I do think it is useful to say a couple words. Um, We like to put this um, route of transmission on a dichotomy, you know, one or the other. In reality, biology is never so simple. And of course, these things take place on a continuum, uh, and many of them are, you know, challenging to, to fully understand. But we, there are objective measures to give us some insight into the primary mode of transmission of respiratory pathogens and respiratory overall pathogens. And that measure that probably gives us the greatest insight, which is often a retrospective measure, is this R0 or reproductive number. And two seconds to introduce this concept, which is the reproductive number is a number that represents a single infected person goes on to infect X number of additional people on average. So it's the number of people on average that an infected individual will go on to infect. An R not of one or below is necessary to stop the propagation of an outbreak. An R not above one, by definition, means that the outbreak will continue. And the higher above one it is, there's an X, there's exponential spread. Um, and so that number is largely determined by two factors. One, a factor that's intrinsic to the pathogen itself. Uh, how effectively that pathogen binds, what level it replicates to, um, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the second factor that determines this are social and epidemiologic factors or environmental factors. So how crowded are individuals are, you know, in a certain location? Uh, are they wearing masks? Um, what level of immunity is present in the community, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things for better or for worse, are wrapped into this are not, which are not easily teased out, but do represent some way of getting insight into how effectively a pathogen is transmitted via, via droplet or airborne. And so influenza historically, whether it's a seasonal influenza or pandemic in influenza, has an R0 in the one to two range. SARS-CoV-2, you've heard this as the variants have emerged uh, has become more transmissible, initially estimated in the two or so range, but as we move from Delta and into Delta into Omicron, we're, we're, we're now sort of thinking in the three to five range or so. Smallpox, which has been considered droplet plus or minus airborne, and you can look into the cases where, you know, the specific scenario and the detailed epidemiologic study really suggested that this was you know, through ventilation and, and truly airborne had an R0 in the five to six range based upon historical assessment. The gold standard comparator is, is measles. Um, and measles, depending upon the study that you look at, and there are plenty, um, simply put, has a very high R0. Um, it is the quintessential airborne uh, pathogen. There's some beautiful early studies that were published in JAMA, where a person with measles walks into a room, stays for a few minutes, walks out, room's empty, 
thing circulates for a couple hours, somebody walks in the hours later and gets infected. That that's a true airborne pathogen. Um, so on this theme of how, how do we recognize uh, viral syndromes in the ICU, I'm trying to um, drill into you a little bit this idea that you need both a an epidemiologic risk factor and a compatible clinical syndrome to key into, oh, I may have this going on. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about recognizable clinical syndromes and then, um, well, where where might your mind go in order to figure out what, what the particular pathogen may be? Um, this is... It's my Olympic uh, model overlapping Venn diagrams of, uh, of viral syndromes. Just, just to emphasize the complexity, you know, some of these syndromes uh, are straight respiratory syndromes. But more often, you know, um, uh, an enterovirus has, may represent as a GI syndrome, a respiratory syndrome, and then go on to cause, you know, um, meningoencephalitis or uh, in the case of Kaksaki B, uh, severe uh, uh, viral myocarditis. Uh, hantavirus may have a, a pulmonary renal syndrome. Um, so, you know, again, well, what is the syndrome that I'm looking at and, and where are the over, overlapping components on, on the Venn diagram? This is a very difficult construct to work with. And so you really do need to break it down. Um, perhaps uh, the most straightforward at least my way of thinking, you know, uh, you have somebody that has a clinical syndrome of uh, meningoencephalitis. We do our imaging, we do our lumbar puncture, we look at chemistries and hematologies on the CSF. We determine is this, you know, bacterial or likely viral. And then at least in most modern hospitals, we send off uh, fluid for a multiplex PCR panel to say, what do we have? Um, there's a few things that are important to note in there. First of all, um, this is actually one of those things where, where obviously you all know that um, you, you want to make a diagnosis um, uh, of, of HSV uh, encephalitis because it is something that we can treat. And it also happens to be um, the most common cause of uh, encephalitis, um, the majority of which are attributable to HSV-1, and, but to a lesser extent, uh, HSV-2. VZV similarly falls into that category, second most common for sporadic viral encephalitides, uh, and is also something that we can do about, do something about. The arboviruses, we mentioned this a little bit more. You have to be thinking about what the risk factors are. Um, is this summertime? Did somebody travel to South America? You know, um, you know what, what might be on the list? And if you're thinking about arboviruses and you want to make a diagnosis, um, simply put, you're going to have to um, uh, go beyond the multiplex um, PCR assays that are commercially available and, and do individual PCRs seeking out your pathogen of interest and then, and then come up with some justification because, as we've mentioned, most of these, um, uh, there's, well, all, all of these uh, do not have, you know, targeted therapy. And then non-polio enteroviruses, mostly in kids, uh, summertime, uh, et cetera. So what, what's on your panel? So if you use the, uh, the BioFire, this is what's on your panel. Um, it will get you your HSV-1 and HSV-2. It will get you varicella. It will get you uh, CMV for your immunocompromised host. 
There's another number of other, it will get you HHV6 for your immunocompromised host. It will not get you a number of your other herpes, other herpes viruses for your immunocompromised host. It will get you general enterovirus, uh, which is helpful as this is, uh, as I mentioned, a common, uh, a common uh, source in kids. So the point here is be familiar with what's on your panel. Uh, so you know what it includes, and, but more importantly, what it doesn't include. So if you want to query something in particular, you're going to have to make a specific request. I want to shift from the brain to the heart uh, and say a little bit about viral myocarditis um, in, the, in the ICU. So the um, pathogens of interest that are, quote, unquote, associated with viral myocarditis um, and I use that word on purpose because some of these fall into the category of clearly shown to be causal. Um, and an example of that is Coxsackie B. And then others fall into the category of, of highly correlated. And if you look at this, um, there's a lot of literature about the correlation of uh, parvovirus B19 with, uh, with myocarditis. It is something that often comes up on an endomyocardial biopsy, which is the only way to truly diagnose, um, excuse me, viral myocarditis. But whether or not that virus actually drives uh, severe myocarditis um, is, uh, is yet to be determined and a, and, and a topic of ongoing interest by many investigators. I like this framework, and I'll show you why I like this framework in just one minute about um, thinking about pathogenesis of viral myocarditis, understanding this is a Nature Review article that's somewhat recent. It's now, now getting a little bit old. But it gives you a framework to think about how these viruses might be causing severe myocarditis. Okay, and I'll just we'll walk through this relatively, relatively quickly from the left to the right. So minutes to hours on the left, virus infects uh, the heart. It uh, triggers an innate immune response within those cells response, et cetera, et cetera. That's the one to seven day period where you got a bunch of little blue dots here. Um, and while virus replicates, uh, virus can have a cytopathic effect on the heart uh, muscle itself, either inducing necrosis or uh, induction of apoptosis, virally mediated cell death. Um, phase two here to the right, one to four weeks, this is when the adaptive immune response comes in. These pretty little cells are um, macrophages. Uh, they've got them as NK cells, but ultimately they um, talk about T cells. And in my, oh, actually they've got both in here. Okay, good. NK and T cells. So this is an adaptive immune response um, where um, cytotoxic T cells uh, do their job. They release perforin and granzyme and they, uh, they, identify uh, cells that have viral antigens on their surface, and they proceed to uh, kill those cells. Uh, and so this is T-cell-mediated myocardial injury and necrosis. Um, and then part of that process is as myocytes are dead and dying, the antigens that are present within a cell that are not usually exposed to a host immune system become exposed. And that uh, consequently, um, one develops uh, autoantibodies against uh, against the cardiac antigens that are thought to perhaps play a role in, in pathogenesis. And the exact role is uh, actually not clear. 
And the third phase is this phase, which is where an individual either goes into recovery, red on the top, or uh, dilated cardiomyopathy uh, on the bottom. And this paradigm is relevant to what we see at the bedside, because as, as you're aware, the range of clinical illness for viral myocarditis is mild, hardly know it's there, to cardiogenic shock uh, with either no partial or full recovery. And that no partial or, or full recovery falls into sort of this paradigm here, where theoretically full recovery is clearance of vir vir virus, reorganization of myocardium, and, and, and recovery of LV function, whereas um, the, the opposite is either delayed or ineffective viral clearance, chronic inflammation, degradation of uh, cells, failure to remodel, and then uh, dilated cardiomyopathy. So why, why do I like this paradigm? Well, it's a useful paradigm because it fits sort of clinically with what we, we see. It gives you some time course associated with uh, what might be taking place. And it also related to what we observed in this one particular case. I'm going to talk about an effort, a collaborative effort that um, our group had with um, many providers at the University of Maryland to, to try to study COVID. But this was an interesting case that we uh, recruited here for uh, this, this collaborative autopsy study um, where there was a 26-year-old individual who post-COVID developed uh, severe fulminant and ultimately fatal myocarditis. We performed an autopsy on him here at the NIH. Um, he, we looked for the presence of viral RNA in his heart. We did not find it. We found trace evidence of viral RNA in other uh, organs, other compartments of the body, specifically the GI tract, but that we found no raw RNA in the heart. But what we did find was um, contraction band necrosis, which if you look on the H&E image on the left, you can see some myocytes that are, you know, nice and pretty and, and how they're supposed to be. And then you can see a number of disorganized myocytes where they reflect, quote unquote, contraction band necrosis. And then, of course, they have all these little purple cells in there, which are largely lymphocytes. They're not supposed to be there. And then we confirmed that they are lymphocytes because we did a CD3 stain, which is this brown stain over here. We did additional stains and confirmed that not just are there lymphocytes, but these are predominantly CD8 cells, cytotoxic cells. And not only are they cytotoxic cells, but they're doing what cytotoxic cells do, which is release um, granzyme B um, and, and perforant to, to, um, to destroy uh, cells that, are, that have um, uh, and, you know, antigens of interest uh, uh, on their surface. We, we, took, we took a one step further where we then actually sequenced um, the T cells from different regions of this individual's heart. And what this little bar graph shows, uh, I just want to draw your attention to the bottom here. These are different areas that we sampled. We sampled lung, lymph node, pericardium, right ventricle, left ventricle, and then septum. And focus your attention on the, on the, the three bar graphs on the right where you see the dark blue, the dark blue portion of the bar graphs. And if you, you've traced the one at the septum up to the top, you'll see that that dark blue accounts for 50 some percent of all T cell, um, T cell clones that are present in the heart. Another way of saying this is that in the RV, LV, and septum, we identified hyper expanded T cell clones where a single clone 
accounted for, you know, greater than 50% of the population of T cells in this individual's heart that we, that we sequenced. We went on to do some additional bioinformatics that suggested that these, these hyperexpanded clones were specific to um, SARS-CoV-2, which I already told you we didn't find in the heart. But then I went back to the paradigm about the time course. And the assumption is by the time we captured this individual virus was cleared and that they were in the phase of T-cell mediated injury uh, following pathogen clearance. We're actually doing some follow-up functional studies to confirm or refute that those T-cells were actually specific for COVID 2 but an, an interesting case because it provides a little bit of insight into, um, into the, the syndrome of multi-system inflammatory, um, uh, uh, multi-system multi inflammation syndrome in adults and MIS-A, um, which is otherwise a bit of a black box, both in adults and kids. So moving along, uh, I want to shift a little bit from um, viral syndromes. We talked about encephalitis. We talked about myocarditis. I want to introduce another concept, which is one that's near and dear to my heart, which is the definition of an emerging virus. So we're going to start with the definition, which is a virus that has either newly appeared, dot, dot, dot. We're going to come back to the rest of this in a minute. But we're going to stop at that for just a minute, and then I'm going to shift you to your patient who's in the ICU who presented with a respiratory viral syndrome. <laughs> and we all use uh, the multiplex. I mean, you know, many of them, and I, this is not a commercial for the BioFire. I know there are other um, assays out there, but, you know, we, we do use that here. Um, and so these are the pathogens that come up on your BioFire when you send a respiratory viral panel nasal swab, you know, or swab, BAL, whatever. Um, and let's just go through them. So adenovirus, we talked about um, these first three coronaviruses on the left, 229E, HKU1, NL63, OC43. Those are the, you know, previously known endemic, quote-unquote, mild human coronaviruses, okay? So you can identify whether one of those is present. Now SARS-CoV-2 appropriately is included in this panel. Human metanumavirus we know can cause lower respiratory tract infection. Rhinoenteroviruses under the right circumstance can, can cause uh, disease but are often co-pathogens both with viral and or bacterial pneumonia. I've circled, there's a bunch of, there's a, there's a smorgasbord of influenza A here and I've circled influenza A by itself for a reason which I'm gonna get to. But below the, 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 or the, below the boxed influenza A, there's AH1, AH3, AH1, 20, 29. So those three there, uh, H1, H3, and then the 20, 2009, each year we have predominant circulating strains in, in the United States. There's an H1 strain, there's an H3N2 strain, and then since the 2009 pandemic, there's a certain lingering strain of, uh, that is, uh, that is um, from, from that pandemic. So typically, if you have a patient that presents with influenza, this biofire should hit on one of these three, H1, H3, or the H1-29, 2009. Or, whoops, it should hit on an influenza B, co-circulating with influenza A more or less every year, are two, one of two versions of influenza B. The influenza B is not as diverse as A. So if you've got B, it'll pick it up. If you've got the three flavor. 
So I, and then perinfluenza virus and RSV. So I circle influenza A because that should raise your quest, raise a question in your head. Why am I hitting on influenza A that's not H1, that's not H3, that's not B? Why am I hitting on influenza A? And, and there are different, you know, technical reasons for this. But if you get that, the, the, the implication is that you have a strain that is outside uh, the, the typical circulating uh, seasonal strain of influenza. And so if I see that, I, I certainly is curious and it raises this possibility. So, and this possibility is a dot, dot, dot. So this is what we're gonna talk about. So this is a little bit about the biology, which again, many of you likely know at this point, but a little bit about the biology of influenza A viruses in nature. These are extremely diverse viruses. I've already mentioned that they have a segmented genome. They have eight genome segments. Um, they are classified by subtypes. Um, and those subtypes, which are listed on the left hand of the slide there, there's 18H and 11N known subtypes of influenza viruses. And the H and the N are hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. Those are the glycoproteins that sit on the surface of the virus that allow us to characterize them antigenically. Um, so again, enormous diversity, 18 H's, 11 N's. The majority of those subtypes circulate in nature in wild or domestic birds, which is the bottom of this picture here. And these birds may be infected with any number of, of viruses all at once. And they don't, you know, typically they don't get sick. I mean, the caveat is the high path avian influenza virus. That high path is not referenced referent to us. It's referent to the birds. It, it causes actually illness in the birds. In the absence of that, most of these viruses circulate in the birds and, and, and they, the, the birds don't show signs of illness. But the birds are, are serve as mixing vessels for these, um, these segmented viruses such that you may have virus uh, red on the left here and virus blue on the right here, where uh, once inside a common host, uh, the envelope comes off, the gene segments have an opportunity to mix and mingle, and then you get virus you know, red and blue here in the middle, which is generally referred to as a reassortant virus. That reassortant virus may stay in the wild birds or the domestic birds, or it may spill over. And, and, and spillover, I mean, and leave, its, leave uh, its species into another species, for example, a pig or a human, and then therefore there may be other spillover events from a pig to a human, et cetera, et cetera. So why is this important? Uh, that's sort of um, important for what's emphasized on this slide, which people conceptually, I think, are aware of, but that if multiple influenza A viruses infect a wild or domestic bird and mixing occurs, a novel virus may, may happen. And then that novel virus may spill into, into humans, either directly from a, a bird or a pig. And in fact, this has happened many, many times. Um, it has happened many, many times over history. Uh, this, this slide here represents uh, repeated avian influenza spillover events with, uh, uh, without sustained human-to-human -human transmission. So um, these are the one-off cases that any one, of, any one of us are capable of picking up uh, where you have an A virus that's uh, not an H1, not an H3, where you find that there's been a spillover event, either an avian virus or 
what's termed swine variant viruses because pigs also serve as a nice little mixing vessel for influenza. But the key about these viruses is that, that, that more often than not, you know, they're not, they don't result in sustained human-to-human transmission. It's the fact that one of these viruses because, becomes adapted adequately to the human host that results, that allows for sustained transmission, that is one of the cedar events for a pandemic. And it is why, you know, there has always been so much attention on influenza viruses and needs to continue to be. Back to our definition, a virus, um, the emerging virus, a virus that is either newly appeared or notably increasing in incidence or geographic range. Increasing in incidence or geographic range. Um, this brings us back to 2014. Um, geographic range. What, it, what is shown on this slide um, with, with the uh, little, little blue dots are the um, regions in West Africa where prior Ebola virus outbreaks have, excuse me, regions in Central Africa where prior Ebola, out, Ebola virus outbreaks had, had occurred from when the virus was first discovered in 1976, moving forward all the way into, into 2012. And you can see that uh, based upon the red area around those blue dots, the, that they were that most of these outbreaks were quite limited in their geographic uh, range. Uh, and then, you know, some of the red dots here are more recent outbreaks, the ones that took place between 2014 and, and 2018. And importantly, up here in the left-hand corner, which is the different geographic, uh, you know, range of a, of a new outbreak is, is West Africa. And you can see by the red that the, obviously, the, those three countries of Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia was, was an enormous uh, area, an enormous outbreak where this took place. But the underlying linker between uh, where this had occurred in the past and where it occurred in a new uh, geographic environment was the green on this map, which is the which is the which is the Guinea Congolian rainforest, which is where the the range of which the um, putative reservoir, which is a fruit bat, putative not definitive, uh, you know, is able to to live and and to traverse, such that a spillover event into a human population may may occur and, and in fact did occur in West Africa, at first in 2014 and then more recently uh, for a second time. And as you all know, um, uh, this resulted in the largest outbreak, in, and this is where I gained my firsthand experience caring for patients with Ebola back in 2014, uh, working with Doctors Without Borders for a bit of time. And then shortly after that, we had we cared for a patient here at the NIH. This is a couple members of the team uh, and, and this individual who was critically ill. And you know, some of the PPE should look familiar to folks. Uh, we didn't think we would, you know, we're not doing this now for for COVID, but at the beginning, we, we you know, kind of jumped back into that space. And then on the left side of this slide, you know, kind of emphasizing the complexity of these viruses, you know, uh, the pathogenesis. And one, one unique feature, one not unique, but one, I think, defining character of Ebola virus is that this virus infects and replicates in circulating monocytes. And actually they serve as a powerhouse for viral replication such that you'll achieve viral loads of 10 to the 7, 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9 um, in individuals. 
And those activated macrophages that are supporting replication and then go on to die are highly inflamed, uh, contribute to, um, you know, many immune mediators contribute to disordered coagulation. And in this particular patient, we did some neat studies suggesting that when their antibody response kicked in, all of that stuff was like remarkably quieted down. And then within days, uh, a person that was critically ill with multi-organ failure, you know, could be awake, uh, extubated, and kind of, you know, beginning to be meaningfully recovered in, in a really short period of time. And I must admit to you that that's what I saw over and over again in West Africa. If, if folks got to date eight, ten of their illness and with an onset of an adaptive immune response, then either by then they were dead or they, within a relatively short period, they would begin to snap back and stand up from complete prostration and, and get on with it. So it, this is sort of an interesting and remarkable, remarkable disease. Um, this was uh, the sequential organ failure that took place in, in our individual. And I, I won't show you the um, slides of, uh, of their biomarkers. We did thir 1,300 um, analysis of 1,300 circulating proteins that snapped back uh, after this person's adaptive immune response kicked in. This slide just tells you that Ebola is still a problem. Uh, this is from one of the outbreaks in 2019. Uh, cases are the uh, blue boxes on the bottom, vaccination rates. We now have a very effective vaccine uh, charged up, but cases stayed uh, high. And then the mortality ratio stayed at six, 60%. And this was in the setting of various MABs and, and otherwise. So the point here is that, yes, we have some MABs, and yes, we have a vaccine. The vaccine works well, but... Number one, you've got to have a vaccine. And number two, um, even, if you, even if, if, if you come in late and you get a MAB, um, the, the, uh, the, the case fatality ratio of people that showed up late in their disease course was still in the 60% range. So we've got a lot more to solve with regard to Ebola. Now, everybody's favorite topic, and I've left this for the last uh, eight minutes, uh, which are coronaviruses. <laughs> Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about coronaviruses. I, I know I know you all know this by now, but I'm, I'm going to go over it briefly anyway. Uh, these are spherical envelope positive strand RNA viruses. There are four genera. The alpha and beta flavor are the ones that, call, that, that are associated with human pathogens. There's an extremely wide host range in, in nature. Um, and that the out, they largely cause respiratory illness in human respiratory illness, which I want to come back to in, in humans. Um, this is just a chart of, of the different human coronaviruses. The black ones, these are alpha and beta, are the are the mild ones, and then the the severe human coronaviruses, of which there are now three, are SARS-CoV-1, MERS-CoV, and then now SARS-CoV-2. Obviously, we know that SARS came and went remarkably. This is not SARS-CoV-2. MERS is still around. Um, it does not have sustained human-to-human -human spread, but continues to spill from an animal uh, host into humans and cause recurrent outbreaks. Uh, there are common features among these uh, three different hum severe human coronaviruses. And the prim primary common features are that, yes, um, the majority of these individuals require uh, respiratory support for respiratory failure, um, but they also, at least as it relates to MERS and SARS-CoV-2, many uh, that are that are in our ICUs, and this is an, these are ICU populations, uh, require renal replacement therapy, and two-thirds to a three-quarters require vasopressors. So I would love to sit and talk with any of you uh, at any point uh, and, and hear your thoughts 
on what is driving vasodilatory or distributive shock in these severe viral infections, because I think it's a fascinating aspect of pathogenesis that we have, you know, little to no insight into yet. Um, and then I want to come back to uh, this concept that COVID 2 is a respiratory viral infection. And I'd like to put an exclamation point across the, the screen that says, no, it's not. Um, or at least it's not just a respiratory uh, viral infection. And this, this again, was this work is in preprint uh, and it's, um, it's under peer review. But um, and this is, the, again, the collaborative work that we did with um, Allison Grazioli and the University of Maryland many colleagues uh, in the ICU, the surgical departments, uh, and then a number of uh, satellite hospitals over the first full year of the pandemic where we recruited uh, fatal cases uh, to the NIH for autopsy and then systematically sampled all different parts of the body to look and say, you know, is there evidence that a virus being there uh, by molecular, molecular assay, we used uh, our PCR, droplet digital PCR assay, is there evidence of all replication, uh, molecular evidence, which we used a, something called a subgenomic uh, PCR assay, which targets a, a replication intermediate uh, of the virus, so it's indicative of recent viral replication, and then a, a subset of these uh, where we identified DDPCR and subgenomic, we went on to culture these viruses from both pulmonary and extrapulmonary sites. But this is a heat map of uh, different compartments of the body where we look for virus. Um, there are kind of three main groups. If you look at the bottom of this heat map, individuals that presented within 14 days or died within 14 days of their illness, individuals that died between uh, two weeks and a month, and then individuals that died greater than a month out or th 31 days after illness onset. And, and this subset is just, we did, there were 44 cases. This is only 11 cases presented here. You could see their P stands for the patient number uh, or, or across the top. And then simply put bright, you know, dark red is a lot of virus and light blue is a little bit of virus and, and uh, white is that we couldn't find any in gray as we didn't have that sample. But needless to say, we found vol RNA um, in, in many, many different sites. And including in individuals um, that were, if you look here at P42 all the way to the right, um, 230 days after the initial onset of their illness, across multiple compartments of the body, but importantly also in the brain. So we sampled uh, all these different regions of the brain from these individuals uh, and found evidence of, of viral RNA in, in multiple regions and, um, and are sort of further following up on, on, on these observations. So. Um, you know, um, this is just a little bit of a, of a you know, um, plug for the importance of, you know, deeply characterizing these viruses to better understand where they go, how long they stay there, what they're doing while they're there, what the body's response is to them in all these different departments, all with the goal of better understanding mechanisms of, of illness and um, uh, that will allow us to kind of help improve on our care of these patients. So I have two slides uh, in three minutes um, left, but what does the future bio threat look like? Um, I think, so the anatomy of the future bio, bio threat, there has to be negligible population immunity, which we talked about. The, th the thing has to spread relatively well. Um, 
it's lovely that it would be adaptable, like these RNA viruses that have an error-prone RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, um, so that every time we thought we were catching up with them, they would outpace us. Um, of course, they need to have uh, high morbidity and, and mortality and limited countermeasures. And as you've all realized, as critical care providers, we are the ones that are on the front lines of recognizing, um, diagnosing, and ultimately managing these uh, threats. Um, and I think it doesn't take much, if any, convincing to tell this group that we are going to continue to be on the front lines of, of this um, full stop period. Um, so what are our lessons? Uh, I just, from this lecture, I just wanted to introduce the breadth of viral infections. I am no expert in 99% of the infections that I presented, but I do think it's useful to know what the universe of viral infections looks like and when they might be showing up in our ICU. And to help get from that universe to your patient, I think you need to be aware of viral syndromes and risk factors. Uh, that might make you say, aha, I should be thinking about Miss A in my patient, or I should be thinking about, you know, enterovirus myocarditis or whatever. Um, and then, um, you know, ultimately our goal is to pursue a timely confirmative diagnosis to implement infection control so that we, others don't become infected in the hospital setting and then when available to introduce targeted therapies. And with that, I've taken up my full time and I will stop.